AT&T Connects and Ode to Podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news, sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the driving to work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. Hi, listener. I'm Carol Fisher, the host of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister. I'm so excited for you to hear the brand new season where we're uncovering a 35-year-old mystery. But for those of you who didn't hear season one or just want to listen to it again, you can now get access to all episodes of that first season of The Girlfriends 100% ad-free through the iHeart True Crime Plus subscription, which is available exclusively on Apple Podcasts. You'll also get access to every single episode of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister, ad-free and one week early, only available to iHeart True Crime Plus subscribers. So what are you waiting for? Head to Apple Podcasts, search for iHeart True Crime Plus, and subscribe today. Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You're tuned in to the Gangster Chronicles with James McDonald, Reggie Wright Jr., and Alex Alonzo on the Digital Soapbox Network. I have a material witness on an aggravated battery uh, with a handgun, and uh, they believe uh, this might be in retaliation uh, to her testimony. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you may be listening from. Welcome to another episode of the Gangster Chronicles. My name is Alex Alonso from Street TV, a.k.a. Street Gangs, and I'm here with my co-host... James McDonald. And we are... What's this? Our second episode without Reggie Wright Jr.? Second episode. So we're doing the show. We're holding it down without Reggie Wright Jr. This is episode 33, and if you're new to the podcast, please go back and listen to a few other episodes, because you'll see that a lot of our episodes are interrelated, and... You won't start hearing me till episode three, so don't fill my inbox with all these questions. And if you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts, please leave us a rating and a review so that we can continue bringing you this amazing content. You could also post a comment and a question that we will answer on the air. And if you want, you could audio a question via your cell phone and text it to us, DM us, uh, post it on the Facebook page. And if the question is worthy, we'll play it on the air. And if you like this podcast on Apple Podcasts, give us a rating from one to five. Five mean that you're loving the show. And for those who do not have Apple Podcasts, you can listen to us on Google Play for you Samsung and Android users, Spotify, and Radio.com. Or you can listen to the podcast the way my mother does, and she just asks Siri, play The Gangster Chronicles. Wow. And you could also watch portions, video portions of this podcast on the Digital Soapbox Network. That's on YouTube. Videos produced by Smooth Cut Productions. 
And if you want to get in touch with James, you can catch him on Facebook. And he is the one with the James McDonald with the red Harley in his profile. And you could also find him on Instagram at B-I-G-G-J 3636. And you can still get those Death Row t-shirts from him, 909-800-6404. And he will deliver them to you within one to two days. And you can find me at streetgangs.com. Just click on the contact link and you can send me a message via email. And I'm at all social media platforms at AlexAlonso101. That's on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. So, James, uh, before we go into our show, we got a special guest, but I want to just cover a couple of uh, facts from from the last couple of weeks. Let's go. I think uh, I said that John Connolly, who was the FBI agent that was working with Rusty Bulger in Boston, was sentenced to life in prison. That is incorrect. <laughs> he was sentenced to 10 years in the feds in 2002. Then he got out in 2011, and they, the, um, the state of Florida picked him up for a murder, and he was sentenced to 40 years there. Uh, the state of Florida has him scheduled for his first parole date in 2039, shit. and he will be 98 years old. What That's the FBI oh, agent. <laughs> what are you going to do when he comes out? <laughs> uh, well, if he's going to even make it to 98 years old inside the feds. I didn't know that. Yeah, that is crazy. Now, about two episodes ago, James, Reggie Wright Jr. was talking about the book deal that maybe Ray J has about Suge Knight and Ray J, um, Suge Knight and whatever they're gonna, whatever they're doing. But I had threw out there that hey, you don't have to be on a major publishing, and you could be an independent writer and get on a major publishing like like um, Monster Cody did. Yeah, and he was published on Penguin. James had said, what do you say? He says on, oh, that ain't no major publishing company. But Penguin Publishing was founded in 1934. It operates out of London, England. And it is one of the biggest publishers in the history of America. I mean, so in the history of the world. Reggie didn't know. Reggie didn't know. And just because uh, Monster Cody from Matrix Gangster Crip uh, published his book under Penguin don't mean it wasn't major. And I thought that was a hell of an accomplishment because Homeboy wrote his book in the shoe in, in um, Pelican Bay. Oh, did he? Yeah. Well, you know, if he when he gave up that material, they read that book and went through it and, and they read it rewritten some stuff in there well uh, i don't know the specifics of it but it was a hell of a book it came out in 1993 it's called an autobiography of a los angeles gang member on uh, penguin penguin is now uh merged with random house uh, since 2013 so i just wanted to correct reggie wright jr on that penguin is a major publishing house and the last fact check, well, this ain't really a fact check. I wanted to find out what was bus stop from OFTB's real, his actual job now. I heard it when he was a chiropractor. I couldn't find it out. So if anyone out there knows, please hit us up. His real name is Sammy Williams, and I couldn't figure out what is his current profession, but I believe he's in the medical field, which is amazing because he's from out the Bounty Hunters. He's from out the Nickersons. Well, I mean, good things come out the project. <laughs> For mean, sure. Good things come out of everywhere, in every neighborhood. You got some you got some cats that got skills. And your brother was close to all them guys from OFTB, right? Yeah. Well, we all were. We all was close to them. Um, everybody, yeah, we had a good report with them. It was just the politics that, that um, divided everybody. Okay. All right, so I just want to—I got just a couple of news updates. Um, 
Joshua Brown, in the Joshua Brown case out in Texas, that guy Thaddeus Green from Louisiana is still on the run. Remember there was three guys wanted and they arrested two? I was just talking to somebody that, that live out there, and he was telling me some interesting stuff about it. And he, one thing he was saying that the police had sunned those guys. Well, this is one of the theories out there. The police sunned those guys to get at him. <clears throat> what happened was they said that first they thought he wasn't going to be a credible witness because he, you know, sell marijuana and his track record and all that. They brought all that up in court, but he still testified on the behalf of the guy that got killed. But then they said that he turned out to be such a good witness and what have you, uh, the police didn't want him because of the the lawsuit that was coming from the mama. So they had to get rid of him. So I don't, I, you know, this is just here to say what he was telling me. That is a lot going on out there. I think there's a lot of unanswered questions, even it's though a, it seemed like maybe it was just a drug deal went bad, but there's still, it still smells to me. But I don't, I don't know. It's too early right now to even try to speculate on whether the Dallas PD had anything to do with Joshua Brown's murder or if it was just these well, three dudes. I, one thing I did ask him, I said, well, do you see all of these things on the news? The three guys, this guy getting killed. Oh, yeah, it was on the news everywhere when it happened. So it, this situation does exist. So we were sitting there like, it's impossible. Why, did, why we ain't hearing about it? We ain't in Texas. We don't get the Texas news. So it's definitely happening. And those guys were shot, and the whole nine is for real. Well, hopefully um, we'll, we'll go stay on that story because nobody's talking about it right now. It's, but if we learn something dead. new about it, you're going to hear about it on the Gangster Chronicles. Uh, did you hear about Badass from Long Beach who was uh, briefly signed to Death Row Records during the 90s? He died in police custody a few days ago in Riverside County. Wow, nobody know what of. He's only 43 years old. Well, I'm going to say rest in peace to you, my brother. You know what I'm saying? Me and you really didn't know each other. Ran into you, but we really didn't, you know, kick it like that or nothing. But rest in peace. Yeah, rest in peace to Badass from Long Beach. Um, we'll find out what happened to him in the next couple of coming days. And the last thing I want to say is um, the East Coast Crips and the Florence 13s had their third face-to-face -face meeting. I believe it was either October 31st or November 1st. Uh, I was out of town, so I wasn't able to attend it. But there is footage online. If you go to Skip Townsend's YouTube channel, he has about two minutes of footage. For those of you who don't believe this is true, that have been questioning whether or not that East Coast and the Florences came together, they came together again, and there's actual video footage on YouTube that you can see. You see a bunch of Mexicans, about 100 of them. I've seen Cynthia Nunn in one <laughs> Cynthia, of them. That's the video I'm talking yeah. about. Cynthia Nunn was I've sitting in her van. Nine. And, 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 you know, it's, it's crazy that we, we put ourselves down when you're doing good things like this. You know, a lot of cats is, oh, they only doing this because of Donald Trump. I wouldn't give a fuck. If, the, if, if it took Donald Trump to get these two neighborhoods together, then fuck it. I, I give a high five to Donald Trump for putting them together. Definitely. But we need to get them on Gangster Chronicles, and everybody can hear this story. Yeah, maybe Because everybody needs to know what's going on. I'll, I'll reach out to little Doc and see if we can get uh, a representative from Florence 13 and perhaps come here yeah. and just talk about this monumental truce uh, between two gangs that have been warring for 20 years. And uh, lastly, we got to shout out Nori 
from the Drink Champs. Nori went on. Oh man, he went on a podcast called uh, No Jumper, and guess who he said was the best podcast out right now? That was crazy to me. <laughs> he said the Gangster Chronicles is the best <coughs> podcast out right that now. That was crazy. <laughs> the way he explained each and everybody role and. I was like, man. He this... compared us to the TV show, um, um, the one out of Baltimore with the gangsters, the police, um, The Wire. He said, the Gangster Chronicles podcast is like the TV show, The Wire. I don't know about all that. But, <laughs> That's I mean, a hell of a compliment, man. It damn sure is. And it, 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 it had me choked up because I'm like, I'm not into it. I don't look at the, and I, I'm bullshit y'all not. I don't look at the comments. I don't look at none of these videos. I don't do none of it. I come in here, and after the show is over, I go home, and I'm waiting on another week. I don't pay attention to it. So I got people coming to me, coming up to me at the stores, at the swap meet, uh, pull up on the side of me and take a double take and say, oh, you guys crying. It's, it's, it's overwhelming to me. I mean, I done went from here all the way to here where I'm at now and, and being recognized, man, you helped me this, you helped me that, you helped me through a hard time on this. And and we appreciate all y'all. We appreciate all y'all. I appreciate y'all from the bottom of my heart. Um, I, I never thought I would be in a position where I'm at now. He even offered us distribution in case we needed it. <laughs> uh, that's how much he loved the show. But I, I've known Nori, man... I think I've known Nori for about 12 years now, and he's always been a good guy. Whenever he comes to L.A., when, if he's not too busy, he hits me up. I was surprised that he shot. I didn't even know Nori. I haven't talked to Nori since we've been doing this podcast. Wow. So I was surprised that he even, you know, because he's got his own podcast, The Drink Champs. Yeah. And that is one of the top podcasts in the music category. So I know he's busy with doing his podcast, but he's listening Man, to us. I swear to God, I thought it was... Uh, uh, Norm or uh, somebody should man give my boys a shout out. I'm, I'm like, man, is this dude for real? He on there and and it was it was something else. It was something else. All so, right, let's roll. So uh, we got a special guest today. This guy is born in New York, came out to L.A., has a career in entertainment, but he is tangentially linked to organized crime. He just came out with a book called The Accidental Gangster. Ori Spado. But before we go into a conversation with Ori Spado, let's play this clip. AT&T Connects and Ode to Podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news, sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories, change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. Hi, listener. I'm Carol Fisher, the host of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister. I'm so excited for you to hear the brand new season where we're uncovering a 35-year-old mystery. But for those of you who didn't hear season one or just want to listen to it again, you can now get access to all episodes of that first season of The Girlfriends 100% ad-free through the iHeart True Crime Plus subscription, which is available exclusively on Apple Podcasts. You'll also get access to every single episode of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister, ad-free and one week early 
only available to iHeart True Crime Plus subscribers. So what are you waiting for? Head to Apple Podcasts, search for iHeart True Crime Plus, and subscribe today. I'm Elia Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I've never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true, and I'm not offended by that. Thank you for, for going through those things, and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for the limits. Every time I have like one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a, in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I equate a good gangster up there with a doctor or a good lawyer. There's good gangsters, there's bad gangsters. You know, it's like anything else in life and any other segment of life. But being a true gangster, uh, most people would think that maybe I'm a little mentally ill, and maybe perhaps I am. But to be a true gangster, you have to be intelligent. You know, you mentioned a few guys that I knew. And what separates those guys? My Lansky, Frank Costello, Carl Marcello, Sonny Frenchet, Jimmy Cacciato. Jimmy Cacci, even though there was a period of time, he couldn't read or write. But they were still smart. There's a show on TV right now about a guy Ray Dunnett. Yes. It seems like that show kind of mirrors your life a whole lot. In a way, yes, because when I came down to Hollywood, I knew Dino De Laurentiis, Ralph Serpy, and I don't know if anybody knows who Dino De Laurentiis was, but at that time, back in the day, he was biggest independent producer around, and Dick King calling uh, across 134th Street, and tons of movies. I became close with them, he was he came from Italy, uh, they were involved with Carlo Ponti uh, over there in the, the film business. And he was very successful and I became friends and next thing you know, there's a problem here, a problem there. And I went out, I talked to people, they were easy problems, I just sitting down with people. I contribute my experience as a salesman of someone in church for understanding people and be able to sit down and take care of a problem. So you were what they would call a fixer? I was known as a Hollywood fixer. How much of that show do you think they borrowed from your life? Oh, uh, I only think maybe somebody, somehow picked up something and the writers, once a writer gets something, they change it all so totally different. We had a writer who wanted to do a script TV pilot about me. I mean, I read that. I didn't even know who the hell he was talking about. There was no assemblance at all. I think the writer was probably dreaming and in reality he was hoping that he was the guy that he was really writing. Um, but that's a whole other 
situation and we could talk for years about writers in Hollywood, but everything's the written word. It seems like all my life people always thought of me as a gangster, but for many years I was a successful insurance man and the leading agent for the Prudential Insurance Company, and then I had my own agency where I serviced automobile dealers with a training program and where I sold them credit life and accident and health insurance. That became my first indictment. Uh, a guy that I took that never made more than $30,000 a year, I brought him in, a gentleman, I can't call him a gentleman, but he was making over a hundred grand a year with me. Uh, I, my company was growing very quickly. I was doing very well. And he became very jealous. He found out about a deal that I had with the insurance company where I was allowed to use the premium to grow my business. And then he tried to say that, you know, that I was friends with Sonny Franchese, Meyer Lansky, and others, which... Uh, he was trying to get me into tape conversations. Anyway, that became my first indictment. And I was facing 55 years in prison. And it was my first case. Uh, I ended up getting five years probation. But once I had that felony, it was like, you know, and I became who I was. I left there. I went to San Francisco. And I became very well known in San Francisco in a very short period of time. I already known Sonny Franchese, all right? And I knew Meyer Lansky. And through life, I got to meet other well-known gangsters that's all in my book. Uh, Carlo Marcello, uh, Russell Buffalino. That's who Joe Pesci plays in a new film, The Irishman. Yeah, so I had a... Uh, Hell of a life. I know you had some dealings with uh, Ariel, for example. Well, uh, Michael Harris, yeah, Ariel. How we met him was, a, uh, I don't know if you guys know who Danny Sins was, but Danny was the first guy that produced Bob Marley. Uh, Danny was big in the music business. And when Danny was in Los Angeles, I was the guy that took care of Danny. Any problems he had. When he was in New York, it was Joe Piney. And when he was in London, it was my best mate, Joey Pyle. Danny knew how to work the system really good. And he was always protected. But he came here, and before he came here, he stopped in New York. He was with Wyclef, and through Wyclef, he met Asian Jack. And they came out here with, uh, and wanted me to handle a problem with Suge Knight. Lydia was so, and there was a little issue, she wanted me to talk to Suge. And uh, I met Lydia, Haitian Jack. Haitian Jack ended up sleeping on my couch for a year. So I found out who he really was. But uh, they went back and forth, and every time Lydia was here, she got Michael on the telephone. Uh, but. There was not a need for me at that situation be, to sit down with show because I really didn't know who was right, who was wrong in the situation. And 
with Michael being in prison and his wife handling his things for him, it was not a proper situation for me to get involved. Haitian Jack, he's a good talker, he's a good looking boy. He was fast, fast with a woman. We were a hustler. He, he was getting money from White Club John and Jerry Wonder and all these people. So up on my couch and he drove my son's car for a year. Never offered to put up a five cents. And then I found out the truth about Haitian Jack. What happened was he wanted to do something in the music business and he wanted me to be involved. And unbeknownst to me, he was going around Los Angeles telling everybody he was with me. So that was sort of like a guarantee on him when he was mentioning my name. Wyclef, he and I became friends. Wyclef called me and it was around Christmas time. And he was a good friend with Naomi Campbell. And Naomi was being stalked by this guy out in Long Island. I think this was somewhere in the 90s. So I called Naomi and thought I was going. She happened to be having a Christmas party. So I went there, she had valet parking and all that there, told the guys, leave my car here. I went in, Naomi brought me uh, into her office. We talked, she gave me the information I needed. I said, thank you, I go. She said, we'll stay at the party. You know a lot of people. I said, I really have to run, I said. I said, I'll just walk through and say hello. So I walked through the room where the party was and said hello to a few people. A few late, days later, uh, I'm sitting in my chair at home. Jack's sitting on his couch. I lived over on Swall Drive at the time. I found the guy's address in Long Island. Uh, they went to his home in uh, Long Island. And when they got there, uh, they put him on the telephone with me. And I told him exactly that I did not want him to even think about Naomi Campbell. He wasn't the emailer, he wasn't the caller, he wasn't the look at it. he's not the telephone. I said, no, I said, see those two guys in front of you right now? He said, yeah, I said, they're being very nice right now. I said, if you ever see them again, that'd be the last face that you're ever going to see. Jack gets up, goes to my dining room table, and calls Naomi and says he took care of it. Oh wow, so he was just trying to just, he was trying <laughs> well, to get what, you know, what I found out, everybody wanted to say that Jack was up to kill. Jack took credit for killings that other people did. Oh, so pretty much what you're saying is Haitian Jack, but no gangster. That's what I'm saying, not in my book. Like I said, he was a fast talker, good looking guy, and he hustled everybody, never worked a day in his life, or made a legitimate dollar. Uh, not that I'm all that holier than thou, but if we make money together, or I'm taking care of you and you make some money, you're going to come over and say, here, do the right thing. I had an overstock of what they call them in those days, DVDs and CDs from Universal. So my mate, Joey Pyle, the boss of London, had a guy named Ron Winters. Ron was big in the music business. And Ron was a conniving son of a bitch. He was good at it. He was a good guy, man. Said he wanted to buy him. We had came to a price. 
And then he tell me he's wired the money to me. I give him my banking and I'd be there waiting. Call my bank, call my bank. The fucking what? I call Ron. Oh, he did, he'd actually give me a, a, a number that he transferred. Nobody could find that number. Then he come up, well, it had to go through uh, the Bank of London from one bank to another bank by the time he gets there. And then I finally found out he was bullshitting. And then through somebody in the movie industry, so when Ron would come to town, he would never tell anybody where he was staying. And he never checked in on his real name, so you couldn't find the guy. So my guy said he had a meeting with this guy, Ron Winters, at the Beverly Woods. I said, what? I said, I want to go over there. And I went, and I was at the bar, and he promised that he would come down and get me. I was literally going to hang this fucking guy out the window. Unbeknownst to me, Suge Knight's there having a meeting with him. The other guy in the movie industry <coughs> tells Suge about me that I'm waiting out there at the bar. And Suge came down, and that's how we met. And he asked me not to do anything. He said, we'll make money. Are you sure you won't make money somewhere else? He said, but I got something going with the guy. I don't want to mess that up. He said, please. I said, okay, no problem. And then it came that I started going to Shug's office um, when he was over here on uh, Worcester and Sampas Sunday. And we always, uh, I always saw him at the Four Seasons almost every night. Because I used to be there practically every night as he was. And uh, then it came time that Ron Winters happened to be his distributor in England. But Ron was distributing death row all over Europe. <laughs> and he wasn't paying Shook. So Shook came to me. My mates, we got the first million. Like, when we got the first million, our deal was that I would do it for 10%. But, we wanted to handle it every month. What happened was sure got, I think he got violated. He was in prison. I got the million dollars. It was way to his account. I can't remember. There's a gal and a guy. And sure called his lawyer from prison and had his lawyer transfer $10,000 in my account. Uh, I mean, a hundred grand. Just like that. It was there the next day. Shug was always a gentleman, and I gotta say, he always did the right thing. Does the Mafia deal with the Crips and Bloods in it? Yes. I did. Got a lot of respect for them, they got our respect. You gotta remember something about the Italians. And particularly us guys from New York. I never knew about fucking prejudice, racial, you know. I never knew about that shit. I was part of New York. I mean, you know, we had black guys who went to school with. I was friends with them. All right? We never had none of that stuff. What would be the biggest advice you would give to the leaders of the Crips and Bloods if you could? Teach your men that there's a better way of life. Teach your men with the... And I know for a fact, I had a conversation with Mike. He, he, he tried to tell his boy what to do with their money. 
how to save it, how to invest it. Because living this kind of life, you're eventually going to die or go to jail. And if you're fortunate to make it through both of those, then you're going to need money to survive. All righty. That was Ori Spado, and we got him live in the studio. So, Ori, um, the first thing I want to ask you is what, what compelled you to want to write a book about all these crazy experiences that you've had in your life? I've been an avid reader all my life. Even to this day, I read every night before I go to bed. And while I was in prison, I was reading. I read over 300 books in prison. And it was just something that in my head, which I'm normally good at formulating things in my mind, whether it's going to be a robbery or a takedown or whatever I'm going to do, but this became an idea. And when I would walk the yard, I came up with the name The Accidental Gangster. <laughs> That's a great title, actually. <laughs> and not thinking that I'm ever going to write a book. I mean, I just never thought of it. But when I got out of prison, there were a lot of guys that came to me in the uh, entertainment business, wanted to do reality show with me. Knowing this town as I know it, most people are bullshitter. And my lawyer is a gentleman named George Ham. It's one of the most prestigious entertainment law firms. George and I, we always get together once a month or whatever, the Four Seasons or the Peninsula someplace, and I'm telling George about it. And George looks at me. He says, Ori, I know your story. He says, write a book, find a writer to help you. He says, and we'll get a movie done. Was it hard for you to find somebody to write so a now, book that's like yours? I know a lot of script writers being mm -hmm. here in Hollywood. I didn't know any book writers. There's a difference, right, between writing a book and writing a script. Totally. Yeah. Totally different. And one writer after another don't write book. I just sat down one day because here I was. I was still on paper. I'm not allowed to go to certain places and all this here. And I wasn't looking to, go to get violated for some stupid shit. <laughs> yeah. So I sat down on my computer and I started writing. I think maybe I was about a third of the way into the book and I just kept doing it, talking to my cousin back east. And he said, there's somebody here who wants to say hello to you. The guy's name was Tom Burr. Tom and I, I haven't seen him since high school. And we're bringing each other to the day. And he said, Ori, do you know Dennis Griffin? He said, do you remember him? I said, yeah. He said, he's a writer. He's living in Las Vegas. He's writing a lot of gangster books. I said, get the hell out of here. Through Dennis, we have Wild Blue Press, which is a publishing company. They write true crime. And they do quite a bit of it, and they do a good job. But you didn't you didn't spend time with Dennis, so he didn't he didn't personally know your story. Last time you seen him was in the military. No, the funny thing was, Dennis was a cop in upstate New York, Monroe County, or someplace I can't remember. I didn't see Dennis again until two months ago. My granddaughter graduated, and I was back in New York, and Dennis and I met again. So your cousin told Dennis. I got this incredible story that no, you probably I, want to write. Google Dennis, and he had his email on his thing. I emailed him, and he called me. First two people who ever read the manuscript happened to be Nick Pelleggi, who wrote Goodfellas, Casino, American Gangster. So right. is Suge Knight and Death Row Records in your book at all? Do you cover? That? Do you talk about Death that in Row? your book? Yes, I do. Okay. Now, James, you guys never met before, huh? No. Never met. <laughs> well, see, he was on... This, I guess the same size business, but he was going a little further and deeper than where we was at. Going out to get the money. As you heard him say, he went and collected a million dollars for it. 
in, in England, right? In England. <laughs> yeah, it was so, my people in London. Now, how do you you come up with the, the name Accidental Gangster? Well, as I walked the yard of Lompoc, I came up because here I was, a small-town boy in upstate New York, and I'm thinking about all the guys that I met. You know, you watch the news, all this gangster stuff, and you see all these people, and I actually met them. I had their phone numbers at one time. I was able to call them. These are bosses throughout the country. And how does something like that happen? And most of the books you read is about the guy. He was born in Bensonhurst, Brooklyn. His father was in it. His uncles were in it. So he became in it. It was quite a process. So It being, took a lot out of me. I mean, just I mean, being a gangster, you know when you're a gangster. Gangster by nature, not by choice. You, you wasn't taught how to be a gangster. You wasn't shown this is the way a gangster should be. You knew exactly what a gangster was. Yeah. And how he lived. So there's nothing accidental about you. You see what I'm saying? Well, that's why I leave it up to the readers. They read my book, <laughs> The Accidental Gangster. They can make the decision. Was it accidental or accidentally on purpose? Okay. What? I say gangster by nature, not by choice. I, that's what I would have named it because, I mean, I wasn't forced into it. I actually walked into this part of life, and I became what I'd seen and what I felt in my heart. This is what I want to do. That's what you wanted to and do. And you walk into it, open arms. Did nobody push you into being who you are? Nobody pushed me That's into right. it. And I just never allowed people to push me into anything. Exactly. Well, in the audio clip that we just heard, uh, basically you were a Hollywood fixer. And I was just curious, um, in your book, do you talk about the specific entertainers that you helped? And can you give us maybe a little snippet of a of a person that, you know, needed to call on your services? I'm going to tell you who some of my friends were, and you'll have to read my book uh, to find out, but I do Frank Sinatra, I know Dean Martin, Sammy Davis Jr. The Rat Pack. Uh, huh? I know them all, and, uh, and several others. And through Dina De Laurentiis, uh, Ralph Serpy, Peter Falk. Columbo. Columbo. But I met him when he was doing... The Bricks job in Boston. Now, for the people who don't know who Dino De Laurentiis is, this is a guy that was con associated with so many great movies during the 1970s. Right. Um, he did the Valachi Papers, yeah. which is the first mafia guy to ever become a snitch um, during the 1960s. He also did the movie Serpico, which was the New York PD officer that decided he wanted to turn in all his corrupt all the corrupt officers that were working in NYPD, and they end up trying to kill him. Uh, and he did the movie about that, Serpico. He also did uh, Death Wish with John um, James Bronson. Yeah, nineteen seventy three. Um, so this Charles is a guy. Bronson. I'm sorry, Charles Bronson. Yeah, sure. this is a guy who he was a heavyweight during the seventies. He was he was like the guy could pull money from the sky. <laughs> so how did you meet for a movie? Uh, how did you meet him? Because uh, Dino De Laurentiis, that that guy has a story to tell in terms of all the films that he made and. And he did, he did some gangster movies, too. Did a lot of gangster movies. Uh, he left out, I... Oh, there's I'm a whole sure bunch I left out. Um, yeah. He also did Conan yeah. the Barbarian in Across 1982. Across 134th Street with Anthony oh, Quinn. Oh, that was, that was the one right there. Yeah, that's that's in the 80s, near the end of his career. Yeah. No, what? Across 134? No, Conan the Barbarian. Conan the Barbarian, <laughs> that's the end. Yeah, that's near the end there. Uh, we actually met Dino basically in the beginning. They were doing a film in New York. Uh, that was the film I just mentioned. 134th Street? Yeah, 134th. Across 100th. I think I got it right. You're right. Across 134th Street. With Anthony 
take one, right? Yeah. Uh, and, you know, they went in this city. Uh, this went before Hollywood really became Hollywood. What year was that film? Uh, and they got other permits to uh, film from the city. And they were in Harlem setting things up when some guys went to them and said, you can't film here because they didn't have the proper permission, which was from the boys. And then through my friend Frank Russo, they went to him, and that's how we got involved and uh, became friends after that there. So back then, let's say you had to have your hand in the majority of, of a lot of things that was going on in the city. Yeah. So wasn't nobody going to eat unless you ate. So this is what this is going to be, and there's no compromise. No this compromise. This is what it is. If not, get out of here. Right. Understandable. Every guy, he's got to be showing a little bit of love. Exactly. Reason. And see, back in the days, that's a good thing because you didn't have one person sitting on the block filling his belly and and looking at every looking down at everybody else, y'all made sure that everybody got something out the deal. Whether it was you're absolutely correct there, and that changed somewhere. Mm -hmm. And exactly when or how, you know, I have a saying: jails are full of people because they're greedy or jealous. You been in prison? Yeah. All right. Most of the people there were greedy or jealous. Got jealous, you killed somebody, or whatever the case. But greed is the main factor, and. The bosses were keeping all the money. Other guys are not making money. And what happened? They try to say that they don't want nobody to deal drugs. They're still saying they don't like any of the guys trafficking narcotics because it brings on unnecessary law enforcement attention. Right. But now, they want that money at the I, same time. I, I wasn't physically there, but, you know, you hear of a gentleman, probably one of the most respected guys around, Carlo Gambino. Never saw that guy going to prison. You never saw the cameras on him all the time. Quiet guy. But he made a promise to the face <laughs> that these guys would not deal drugs. I heard that. I can't attest to it. I wasn't there. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, there's an expectation for all these captains to produce a certain amount of money every month. Yeah, but, you know, there's so many other ways through the construction business, the union, uh, the clothing district. Uh, there's so many other ways of making money, prostitution, gambling, which is the biggest. And there was a no-no. But, you know, when the boss is taking all the money and you got all the captains and the other people, they want their pockets full, too. And so they people started dealing drugs. And what's that produce? Performance. See, to, to, to know that, and then to know that the, that the big man is eating and really don't want to feed me in the right way, especially the things that I do, what, what I bring to the table is worth more than anything. So I should be taken care of. Absolutely. So at what point do you feel like, okay, I'm not getting taken care of? Uh, do that put you in a position where you can walk away and do your own thing or you actually stuck in a situation? <laughs> I think you're stuck there, man. You're stuck in a situation <laughs> and now you got to fend for yourself. I can get into a deep conversation with you on this here. Uh, that, you know, we both could discuss our personal thoughts. Yeah, we uh, do that uh, often. about the life, but we could do that some yeah. other time. Yeah, yeah, we can. Uh, what, 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 I'm, what I'm trying to say is Without making it sound like a, a interview, my whole thing is, you know, we all make choices. We all have choices, and and if this is what I choose to do, I'm gonna get it while I'm getting it, and I'm gonna make sure I get it. Yeah. But at the same time, trying to get it, you can lose. You know what I'm saying? Putting your hands in somebody else's pocket without their permission, you got to deal with the consequences. Yeah. So the way you live, the way y'all live your life, opposed to the way we live our life, is totally different. Y'all have certain rules 
let y'all go by. And our rules don't apply to the way y'all y'all put y'all rules down. Right. You know what I'm saying? So it's basically the same thing, but with different with a different understanding. You know what I'm saying? So it's pretty easier for us to play those trick games. It's pretty hard. If you get caught with your hand in the cookie jar, the consequences is deep. But there well, are a couple of exceptions, though. Uh, Michael Francisi, Sonny's son, actually walked away from the life. And so did John Gotti Jr. kind of walked away from the life without anything happening to them. Would you disagree? And those are two guys that were pretty deep into it. John Gotti Jr. being in the Gambino crime family and Sonny Francisi, um, Michael Francisi being one of the top one of the top earners during the 70s. You read my book, you're going to learn a lot about Michael Francesi. In there. Okay. <laughs> uh, Michael's a very intelligent guy. There's no question about that there. Uh, he made a lot of money. He's Sonny's stepson. Okay. All right? <clears throat> but Sonny did adopt him legally. Uh, when Sonny met his wife, Tina, her name was Christina Capabianco. Michael was a year and a half, two years old at that time uh, when she married Sonny. Uh, Sonny's other son, Sonny's actually got two families. <laughs> he got Carmen, Rosemary, and Lorraine from his first marriage. They... I want to say my age, but I think they're all older than I am. And they're all regular citizens, good people. And then when he married Christina, Michael was stepson. He had then his son, Johnny. Then he had a daughter, Tina, and the youngest daughter, Gia. And I knew all these kids when they were yay high. Gia ended up dying from an overdose at a hotel in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, I think it was. Johnny became an informant on our case against his father, against me, and everybody else. So Johnny was the son? Yeah. And he Johnny, testified against his own yeah, father? Johnny was a spitting image of Sonny. Johnny was a drug addict. Where he at now? It's surprising. I just got word two days ago that he's trying to get a movie made, and the gentleman's name that I mentioned earlier who introduced me to Norman, supposedly he's trying to do it. I doubt if it ever happened. But though, would you would you agree though that Michael and and John Jr. were able to walk away from that life though, which is kind of an exception to the rule, because who their fathers was? Well, maybe that has something to do with it because they were both the sons of high ranking. Um, Michael walked away, and it was an awful long time ago. Walked away with a lot of money, and I wasn't in the room. It's only what I hear. Uh, but he was. Uh, I don't want to say something. That might be wrong. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, a lot of people were paid off some heavy money. Well, you know. So money is the name of the game today. All right. Where it was before, where before you got your button, before you got involved, you had to do this here. You had to go on to work. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. Well, we, no longer. How much money can you bring me? <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Well, you know, uh, Michael Francisi said in a recent interview that he's got a book out, and he does still get nervous sometimes because when he goes to book signings, you never know who's going to be there, and you never know if it's somebody that's still from the life that say, "Hey, I'm uh, that's still hating on him." But a question: Is it still like that today? Is the mafia still active as like it was back then? They're still active. things changed. Uh, a lot of the Italians from Sicily and other uh, from Italy are uh, running some of the uh, uh, families in New York today. <laughs> okay. 
Uh, they're keeping it low-key. Are they as powerful as they were? No way. No way. The FBI, with the RICO Act, just nailed it. They used to, there used to be an FBI unit for every family. Every family, constantly, 24 hours a day. It's no longer the case. They got about two family, two two squads now for the whole five families in New York. Plus, you got the family in Jersey, the family Jersey in Pennsylvania. Um, is yeah. there one upstate? Is there an upstate family? Uh, Buffalo. Yeah. So it's not like it used to be in terms of the FBI monitoring them. No. But then again, the FBI don't have to leave the office to monitor you today. It's easy. <laughs> All right. So, man, there's so many things that I wanted to uh, have a conversation with you about. Maybe we can start off with uh, Haitian Jack. Like, you actually socialized and kicked it and hung out with Haitian Jack. Yes, I did, unfortunately. And I don't know if you knew at the time, but he's the primary person behind Tupac getting shot the first time in 1994, I believe. Right. In New, in New York, where he survived it. And actually, on the rape of that girl, the Tupac it, went away. Correct. It was Haitian Jack. There was another boy there who proffered against me, if I speak. A Jamaican boy named Ricky was there. And it's believed that... Pac never even raped this girl. It was those Correct. other guys. It was the other guys. Yeah. Yeah. But they were Pac's friends, so Pac had the name, so Pac, you get in charge. Yeah. And that's that's why he got shot by them, because he remember he went on TV and said, if you guys are going to arrest the, me, then you got to arrest everybody yeah. that was there. Yeah. yeah. And then that's when um, Haitian Jack and Jimmy Henchman said, man, we got to shoot this dude. Yeah. <laughs> But you actually knew him when he came to Los Angeles. By this time, you you living in L.A. I'm living in Los Angeles, and Danny shows up at my door from New York uh, because he stopped in New York from London before he came in. Now you're talking about Danny Sims. Yeah. Okay, wait. Before we're talking about <laughs> before we're talking about Haitian Jack, Danny Sims is the dude that basically discovered Bob Marley. That's right. In what 1967, 68. Yeah. Um, and you knew him. Oh, Danny right. was the best. Okay, so you met. I uh, know Haitian Dan Jack through, through Danny Sims. Yeah. Right, talk about how did you meet Danny Sims then first? I actually met Danny Sims through my friend Joey Pyle out of London. Joey Pyle was the boss over there. Began with Ronnie, Reggie Cray. Joey was a gentleman, and I thought alike we'd become. Uh, him and Danny had uh, Return of the Mac Morrison. I got his number here. Uh, What's his first name? Morrison. What does his first name? Is? I'll look it up. Mark Morrison. I just talked to him the other day, and I forgot his name. Uh, and Mark was a hot ass back in those days. And he had they had a deal with Warner Brothers, and they wanted me to take care of him while he came. He was here in Los Angeles. Uh, make sure he got to the studios, make sure he did what he sold for. So my son and I went over there, and we took care of Mark while he was here. And Joy and I became very close uh, through the years. And then Danny uh, was moving back to Los Angeles. Is that how I met Danny? <laughs> God damn it. I'd known Danny for so long, now I forget. So did you know Danny no. before he hooked up with Bob Marley? No, I no. didn't know him then. Okay, because that was around 68. So you met him after 68. I did the World of Reggae featuring Bob Marley exhibit at the Queen Mary. And I got to be honest with you, I didn't even know who the hell Bob Marley was until Danny introduced me to Roger Stephan in Silver Lake, who has got a great collection in his home of Bob Marley memorabilia, which uh, we got hired a curator. It cost over half a million dollars just to get it up and put it uh, for people to come to view at the Queen Mary. Uh, but Danny, Danny was a smart guy. 
So was Danny, was um, Haitian Jack trying to get into the music business through Danny Sims because he knew Danny Sims? Well, Danny wanted to do something with Wyclef. He brought, I don't know if Jack was in trouble or something, but Jack was going back, didn't want to go back to New York. And I didn't know that Jack was a snitch at that time. Tupac was the first one, I think, that came out with it, isn't it? And nobody was really believing Tupac. He came out with it in a song, correct? I believe he did say something about him. Yeah. In that song. And I introduced Jack to a lot of people. He sleeps out on my car. And, but he's on the phone every day talking to people, and people are sending their money. It's not working. And he's going out and buying nice clothes, this and that. And, but then eventually, through other people out of Brooklyn and back in New York, uh, they told me Jack was not who he proclaimed. He was taking credit for somebody else. Because when you tell me that you kill people and how many people you kill, then I know you killed nobody. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. All right. Why should that even be a All right. A Why would you tell me? Yeah. All right. That's the dumbest thing. But he did it, and people became fearful of him from it. Uh, There's people in the but industry. the guys in Los Angeles were heads up and a little bit quicker, I guess, than the guys back east. And uh, from my understanding, Jack had been a snitch for a long time uh, working for the FBI. Where is he at now? He in got the deported. Dominican Republic. He got deported, and he is in the Dominican Republic. Yeah. That song that you were talking about um, is called Against All Odds by Tupac, and the line is a real live tale about a snitch named Haitian Jack. Yeah. You know, and I, I didn't know that he was a snitch. And then after they finally got rid of him and everything, all the guys, that were named Big Guy, went in a box. He was in the music business. I can't forget his. I'm, forgive me for with, with names. But through my life, we're not I, talking about Suge, is we? No, not Suge, but a lot of other people. I never introduced him to Suge. I know we we had a meeting one day at the Four Seasons. That's when I first met Mike Concepcion, and uh, really liked Mike. He's a real gentleman, a smart guy. Uh, but everybody called me afterwards. Why didn't I tell them Jack was this night? I said because I didn't fucking know. So what years was that when he came to Los Angeles and was, uh, I guess, sleeping on your couch for for a while? Had to be 2000, maybe. Somewhere around there, he was sleeping on my couch for a year. Then after a year, he got an apartment upstairs in the same building. I don't know who gave him the money. Akon, Akon. Akon. Somebody gave him the money, and he got an apartment upstairs. And then he robbed some Mexicans, and he got a score on I don't know how many pounds it was. It was a big score, and he brought it to Ohio. I know the guy who sold it for him in Ohio. And Jake came back with all the cash, and I lived on Swall over here. Actually, Suge used to be on Swall all the time, too, a block away from me. You remember? Mm-hmm. And I, my patio door was the whole length of my apartment, which I always keep them open because I smoke. And Jack came back from Ohio, and him and Ricky, and Ricky said, you going to go take care of the old man? He says, fuck no, I'm not going to give him a nickel. I heard that. And Ricky came running up and says, Rick, I already heard it. And then I called Jack. I says, you get upstairs, put my son's key under the fucking door. You're not to drive that car. I said, and I want you out of this fucking building by tomorrow. I said, remember something. You're not a gangster. I am. <laughs> you told him that? Yeah. I said, I want you out. Next morning, he had a U-Haul. He moved out. That's when he moved in uh, the building in Century City. <clears throat> so you gave him a pass. 
<laughs> I, w- I would have did something to him for even saying some shit like that. I mean, after you taking care of him. Took care of him. He's a no good motherfucker, and I don't care if that's on the air. <laughs> I'll say it too. He's a no good motherfucker. I mean, but I mean, just living that life, man. How do you feel now that that you're not really, you're not active as you were, but you're still considered a gangster? How do you feel by just just living a, a normal life, just comfortable, just you know? I'm going to be 75 years old, but in my mind, I think I'm still 21. I think we're all going to be like that there, no matter who we are, okay? We all think we're young. And do I miss that fast cash? Yeah. And, you know, I don't have the availability of things. Thank God, I mean, I have money every month. I'm going to pay my rent, pay my bills. And uh, I don't have the extra money to be going out and spending a $1,000 a night at the Four Seasons or the Peninsula someplace. Yeah. You know? (laughs) Those are the days, yeah. huh? But back in the day, I had guys around. I needed 15, 20 grand. I had bookies around. I don't even know who's a bookie anymore. Is there anything you would change if you can go back? If what? If you can go back in time, is there anything that you would change? Yes. I would rather have been born in the 20s, all right, and been really active in the 30s, okay? That was my time. You was ahead of your time. No, I was too late. Well, you yeah. would have been coming up in the bootleg era then. That's right. That was the time <laughs> to become in, become involved. That's the days. Those were the days. Alcohol was illegal throughout the whole third, right. I believe. So you were born, <laughs> what, like in the mid-40s, after World War II? After World War II. I was born in 1944. Okay. Yeah. But it, you see, if I wanted to go back, I'd go back to before I was born. 1944? Yeah. Uh, my mom just turned... 75 um, on the 7th of this month. I was just at her funeral. I mean, at the cemetery. Yeah, she resting in peace now. Oh, God bless her. November the 7th is her birthday. God bless One one year, right? One year. One year? Yeah. Thanksgiving will be, the 21st will be one year of her death. Rest in peace to Mahalia. November 21st? Yeah, Thanksgiving. So your mom was born in what year? 44. 44. You were born in 44. 44. My father was born in 40. My mom and and dad were both born in 40. They touching, almost touching. Well, my father passed in 15, 2015, and my mom is about to uh, be 80 in uh, 2020. And your mother was born? No, she passed away in November. When was she born? She was 44. born in November. She was born in November. She passed away in November. Yeah. Thanksgiving. Jeez. Terrible time, but so day after was, Thanksgiving. Well, she was a Sagittarian then. Yeah. Yeah, same as me. Yeah, she was crazy. So yeah. you born in November 44 too? December. Oh, December. December okay. 17th. Okay. Yeah. Well, um, in two th- let's talk about this indictment because uh, there's so many things. I, I want to make sure we talk about this because in 2008, you was indicted in that whole... Um, what was that? The Colombo the Colombo family indictment, right? So I read through the superseding indictment. There's all these allegations of this guy killed this dude, this dude killed that dude. But then I'm looking. Okay, I want to know what Ori Spado did, and it doesn't say you were involved in any of these things that these other um, Colombo members were doing. Correct. So what exactly? Why were you indicted then? In 1997, an FBI agent happens to be same FBI agent that got Whitey Bulger. John Connolly? No. Oh, oh, you're talking about the one? One out here in Los Angeles. Okay. Which was like a gift to him anyway. He was on the elite FBI 
Organized Crime Task Force. They approached me. They tried to get me to become an informant. I refused, but I grabbed them for money. I gave them a fucking tape one day of Oprah. I got $5,000 for the Oprah show. Honest to God. He, in my fucking living room one day, said, because then I got an attorney. I said, I'm not going to inform. The attorney said, you got anything on Ori? He'll turn himself in. But he said, I will see the day you are chained, shackled, put on Con Air, and brought to Brooklyn. That was 1997. In 2008, he made that a reality. Because I'm going to be very honest with you, by all means, how did they get me on that indictment? Two predicate acts is all you need on a RICO indictment. And they came up with two predicate acts. One was a conspiracy to distribute cocaine. How did that come? Now, I'm going to be honest with you, and I'll tell you. Uh, it's in my book. I used to have 450, 500 pounds a week flown into New York every two weeks. I had airports. I had a pilot. I had everything lined up. Boom, boom, boom. Nice. But cocaine, I really never involved in. But it was a Jamaican boy named Ricky Lee, and I took care of Ricky. Ricky was a good boy. Made a ton of fucking money, and uh, he was sending product from here to Brooklyn and North Carolina. Had a big home uh, up in Hollywood Hill. I was godfather to his daughter. And Ricky always came back and, you know, gave me some loving. You know what I mean? He got arrested. He was supposed to stop the business. His wife went away. And the urge, so he got a hold of 500 pounds, some uh, cocaine and a gun, and he ships it to North Carolina. And somebody were at the shipping place. They tracked it. He got arrested. I was lawyering him up. He was at downtown NDC here. I was lawyering him up. He had a, he shipped several, a half a million dollars worth of cocaine that was on the streets in Brooklyn. And uh, his wife came over with the Mexicans, who I happen to know them both. And in the meantime, Sonny Franchet sent Guy Furtado out to meet with me. Guy Furtado was a guy that Sonny was grooming, was going was his main guy, and so forth. Was Sonny the underboss of the family at the time? Yes. Okay. And, you know, Sonny endorsed this guy. <clears throat> this guy had been wired right from the first fucking moment. Sonny had no clue, right? Sonny had no clue, even though he was told he still... I mean, this guy was an FBI was an informant for the DEA before he went to the FBI. When the DEA was through with him, he got involved with Sonny. Thus, the 500 and some odd tapes. And Sonny was on most of them, which was not good. And you were only on 11. I was on 11. (laughs) And he's sitting on my couch. And the guys who owed the money to Ricky on the streets, they know who who I was. Picked up the (laughs) phone and... They had a hundred grand already. They weren't running, dodging it. What the problem was was Ricky thought I'm going to send them. I forget how many kilos it was, but I'm going to send it that they're going to send me the money back. What he didn't realize is these guys were converted to crack cocaine, so it was taking them longer to convert it, get the money to send back. So they already had a hundred thousand dollars ready. And there's Guy Fatale says, I could have somebody pick that up tonight. I said, great, we got the guy. I don't have to make no call, no nothing. So he has somebody pick up the first hundred grand. And then he starts talking to the Mexican that he wants 50 kilos. He said, me and Ori, 50 kilos every two weeks. I got the car, nobody, the van, we'll ship it back to New York and all the money we're going to make. And then when he's back to New York, he's talking to Michael, who was Sonny's nephew, 
who was acting captain of the Colombo family. I never had any interaction with Michael. Now, Guy Furtado's talking to Michael about all the money we're going to make with Ori because we're bringing 50 kilos. We're paying 12000 He's going to sell it for twenty eight. We're going to make all this money every couple of weeks, right? Is that Michael Carapano? Yeah. Oh, okay. Boy, you're good. Ain't he? Huh? <laughs> that's that's, that's yeah. our, uh, our special weapon. <laughs> right. okay. So now Michael never called me, asked me about it. Nobody. So here's Michael thinking, we're doing this deal. Ori's putting it together. And of course, Michael was out here. We saw all the lit. He saw the respect, the respect I had on the streets out there. But the deal don't happen because I'm not doing it. And these guys ain't going to give it up unless they're whole half a million dollars paid. So the FBI got you basically conspiracy. They got me for conspiracy, Rico conspiracy. Not only that, now Fatato starts digging it into Michael Cotapano that Ori did the deal and fucked us. Ah. So Michael goes to Sonny and gets permission to whack me. Wow. So that's why um, Sonny Francese wanted you whacked. Yeah. So he ordered that. He didn't order it. He gave the approval. Okay. But this is while you were in custody, though, right? Or before? No, before we got Okay, arrested. before you guys got arrested. Yeah, okay. before we got Did you know that he um, ordered you whacked before you guys got arrested? You learned all of this while you're reading your discovery? Listening to my discovery. Yeah. <laughs> that's crazy, huh, yeah. James? You listening to a... To a a tape of somebody saying, okay, I give you permission. Get rid of him. <laughs> How do you feel? I mean, it's part of the game, so I know you accept it to a certain extent because this is part of the game. You know what? <clears throat> Being a man, and I feel that I'm a man, I was pissed off. Why was I pissed off? Not because he ordered that there, because it was a stupid thing. Because Sonny used to call me up and say, come on in and have fucking dinner. Okay. You don't call me up and ask me what the hell the story is over here? If he would have called me, he would have known the Fatato. Then we would have discovered Fatato was an informant. But ain't that, like, we could be best friends. But if you fuck up, I can't stop this hit. So I might have to whack my best friend. So you're not going to get a phone call. You're going to say, come on, let's take a ride. And you hop in the front seat. We already know what's going to happen because these two, the goons, are in the back seat. Yeah. So you wind up getting whacked. You know, you so, don't I mean, understand. I've known Sonny close to 50 years now. Wow. I've learned an awful lot from Sonny. And I, I said on the interview with these gentlemen the other day, these guys are smart guys. And I consider myself a smart guy. Yeah. Guys who become bosses are not stupid. And you got to be able to multifunction. Sonny was very smart. And I was just surprised that he did that. Wow. And I was a little bit hurt. And our last words that we had before he got out, before we did our time, was we're sitting in the courtroom. He comes in. He was on bail. I couldn't get bail. I was facing fucking life with fucking 50 kilos of cocaine. And he comes in. Hey, buddy, I hear you're upset with me. <laughs> I'm sitting down. He's standing up. The judge is over here. <laughs> We're all with co-defendants. Hey, buddy, I'm not pissed off with you. I said, I'm upset. We were talking a little, and the judge said, you two stop talking. I got severed. It was the luckiest thing that happened to me because I got severed from that case because I was going to use that discovery at my trial, at the trial. So Sonny's lawyer tried to get me to prevent me from using that discovery at the trial and tried to get sever 
Sonny Francese for the trial. And the judge says, not any, I'm not in, Sonny Francese is not being suffered. But I read a motion Mr. Spado wrote. I wrote a motion that I wanted my trial in Los Angeles because this is where my peers are. I don't live in Brooklyn. Those people are not my peers. Am I mm-hmm. correct? So Usually it goes by it goes by where the crime, the alleged crime occurs. Both is, crimes took place out there. Yeah, I guess. All well, right. Well, you're using the phone. So you're on the phone in Los Angeles talking to people in Brooklyn. So where's the jurisdiction? <laughs> um, both. Both sides, yeah. Both sides. Both sides. Jur- so what was the result of that um, that motion? about moving your case to Los Listen, Angeles. I, I I wrote my own motion. It was a damn good motion. And the judge says to the U.S. attorney, maybe Mr. Spadle should be severed. And he says, you have until noon tomorrow. Convince me otherwise. Be back in noon. Tomorrow. So the next day we're back there. And the judge says, Mr. Spadle, I have to deny your motion for severance and have your case in Los Angeles. I got in the transcripts. I got some of it in my book. Uh, he said, but what I'm going to do, he says, if you could explain the difference in legal terms to me. And he said that that discovery you want to use could also be used against you. I got up. I explained it could be inculpatory or exculpatory, which it could have. He said, I'm convinced, Mr. Spader, you know what you're talking about. What do you want? I said, I'll take the severance. So I got severed. It was a lucky day in my life. Otherwise, I'd still be in prison today. What happened to Guy Furtado? He was the informant. Guy Furtado, we were blessed because there was another faction of the Colombo family, Michael Uvino and a few other guys. <coughs> and he was such a bad informant that Judge Weinstein, who is the oldest living judge, on the courts, and I think he's still in today, declared him the worst informant he ever used. So now they didn't want to use him as an informant against me. They wanted to use the tapes. My attorney said, no way. I want him. Yeah, because if you're going to use the tapes with Guy Furtado, you yeah. got to bring Guy Furtado to court so your lawyer can cross-examine him. Right. And the U.S. attorney didn't want to bring they him to court? Want to. And uh, So you low-key kind of beat the case, even though they sentenced you to what? I had to plead guilty to a gun charge. Okay. Which was a minimum mandatory. Five. Huh? Five. Five years. And on the robbery, the judge... I, I, I pled guilty. <laughs> I took a deal in 97 months. 97 to 110 months. I got 62. The judge gave me 60 days on the robbery. U.S. attorney was bitching and screaming. And he looked at her and he says, as far as I'm concerned, you charged Mr. Spadle twice for the same crime. He said, Mr. Spadle, my hands are tied on the 924C gun charge. I have to give you 60 months. 62. I was blessed. And then I got sent to Lompo. That's crazy that um, Sonny wanted you whacked. Now, Sonny... He just got out of prison two years ago. Guess how old Sonny is, James? Sonny Francis is the oldest mafia member on earth. Yeah. Or if he's the oldest, 92. 102. 102? I think 102. Uh This fucker's going to live at 200. (laughs) We talk about once a month, once every couple weeks. Is that right? You still talk to him? Absolutely. Wow. You talk to the guy that ordered you whacked. Yeah. That's incredible. Well, at, at at some point, y'all fixed that situation. Had to, because somebody wouldn't be here. Look, it, it's fixed. <laughs> you know what I mean? Exactly. You it, know, it, it, it had to be fixed at at some point. And, you know, look at like I told them. I don't mean. You know what? 
If I did something wrong and they gave permission to wag me, they got a right to. But make sure I fucking did something wrong. So that means he believed um, Michael Catapano's story about you did the deal, you got the money, all this other stuff that yeah, never Michael, happened. Yeah, Michael Furtado were telling him that. Guy Furtado. Guy Furtado. Guy Tano. Guy Tano. was his real name. He went by Guy. That's, that's, I mean, shouldn't that be some type of rule where get in here, we hold court, let's talk about this, we can't fix it. Normally you have plastic on the floor. I'm, I'm saying it because I watch these movies and I see plastic on the floor. And if you step on that plastic, you know you're finna get whacked. So killed, should I say. <laughs> and uh, I'm, I'm, I'm in the moment. So you know it was finna happen. And uh, what what's the name? Joe Pesci? Joe when, Pesci. Yeah, when he played and they they uh, beat him with the baseball bat. That was, was in that? that was the casino in Casino or Goodfellas? Yeah, Goodfellas. 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 When they was killing him and his brother. Exactly. With the baseball bat. It don't no, matter. him and his that casino. Was casino. Cas- it was Casino. casino. Okay. What I'm saying it is Palacio. it don't matter who's who. You know what I'm saying? You make a mistake, they don't hold court. Holding court is getting rid of the situation. The problem. Yeah. So, I mean, that, that's why I say it's totally different from our culture, our way of game banging and doing what we're doing. I, I don't think their culture was game banging. Theirs is like, uh, is a better way. Come on, how did you tell me? <laughs> it's, it's not, it's not, it's, I mean, organized crime. They're organized. They're organized to the T. But a lot of times I think they're too quick to whack people because they go on perceptions, they go on rumors, and they don't get the facts, too. That's they make the mistakes. That, that's what's wrong with it today. They make but mistakes. But they're not whacking nobody today. Yeah, they ain't You've got guys who become government informants, and they're still living in the same no, same house, same neighborhood in Brooklyn. They all, they don't leave. They don't go on the WITSEC program no more. Well, see, what you have now is older bosses. You got you got men that's 75, 79 years old that's not going to do 50 years, 30 years, uh, 92 months in a federal facility. So uh, leave that motherfucker alone because I don't want that shit brought here. So just bring my money. It's all about the money now. It's all about the money. So how is Sonny doing at 102 years old? Um, I call him. I have to call him early in the morning. Early in the morning, my time. I got to get him, like, I call him. I'm up early anyway. So I'll call him, like, 6. So it's 9 a.m. there. <coughs> he's just getting through with his rehab. <laughs> and he's actually moving around. He's moving around because he's going out to lunch every day. I said, what the fuck you doing? <laughs> I said, I said, you go out more than I do. Buddy, you know how we are. Wow. Gotta keep out there. Gotta keep moving. And I tell you, we have conversations, and I just left my ass off with this guy because <clears throat> somebody was telling me they didn't think his mind was that good. I mean, I had a conversation with him, and we were talking about the politics today, and he goes, Buddy, it's all in the Bible. I said, What? I said, Son, let me ask you a question. When the fuck did you ever read the Bible? Let me tell you, he says. One time they put me in a hole. He says, and I read every book that they had around that I can get my hands on. He said, they had no more books, and the last one was the Bible. So I read it. He said, buddy, he says, those old guys who wrote that Bible were smart bastards. <laughs> <laughs> did you ever meet Carmine Persico, who was the actual boss no. of the family? Never. Who just that. recently passed, I think. I met his son. Okay. So, because Sonny would have been, Sonny was his underboss, I believe. Yeah. Okay. Sonny loyalty. Well, back in the day, the years ago, there was, if Carmine was away, Sonny was the boss. 
Sonny was away. Carmel was the boss. But Carmel became the boss. Uh, what were you going to say, James? <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm actually, like, looking at you like, damn, you did your homework on this. Well, you know, and, I grew uh, up in New York in the 70s. You know, my family's from New York. Oh, yeah? So when I was a kid, we knew about the five families. <laughs> we knew about them. Oh, okay. And, and where I moved to, or where my family migrated to, was an old Italian neighborhood in East Harlem, which eventually became all Puerto Rican. Um, Pleasant Street was was where all the Puerto Ricans eventually moved, but there's a restaurant there that stayed Italian, and there was no more Italians living in East Harlem, but every week they'd come drive in from wherever they lived to come to this restaurant. Right. And it was, um, it was I think it was 114th and Pleasant um, Street. I think that restaurant is still there. Rails? Uh, I don't remember the name of it. So, yeah, I have a little understanding of all of this stuff because of just growing up in New York City. <laughs> You know about the Gambino family. You know about the Colombo, um, the Bananos. You know about the Lucchese, the Genovese's, because they all spread out through all these boroughs. And yeah, you can't help but learn this stuff living and in it, New York. And it's crazy to actually survive it. You know what I'm saying? Because every day is a gamble. You know what I'm saying? And and I'm only saying that from my perspective, watching these movies that they put out, and you know Scarface. You know, every day he woke up. Is it was man? I could die today. You know what I'm saying? That's pretty much like nah, us. it's really not. You know, but there is a saying. We used to have a saying here many years ago. You know, we used to meet at a diner every morning. A few of us. You know, if you showed up one day and uh, Peter wasn't there, you know, you don't ask where Peter is. But if Peter ain't there the next day, you know, Peter ain't coming back. Yeah. So, what's your favorite movie that kind of talks about the life? Most of the movies are based on the East Coast, even though people don't know that there was a mafia family in Los Angeles. It kind of died off when uh, during the 50s and 60s, though, right. when um, when the LAPD hired um, uh, William Parker. William Parker became the chief of the P LAPD and he got rid of all of this stuff. He wasn't tolerating it. But what's your favorite movie that kind of depicts the life? That's a good question because I really don't have one. <laughs> what about Bronx Tales? I Bronx, really love that movie. Bronx Tales was, was a good, good movie. With Al Pacino? Yeah. yeah. That was a good no, movie. No, no. De Niro. Oh, I'm sorry. De Niro. De Niro and Chaz. In that yeah. movie, yeah. have you ever, like, okay, I did this to your dad. This kid grows up and then come at you. I mean, it's all different kind of ways. Have you ever had anybody try to come at you because they felt you had something to do with their people? No. One of their loved ones? No? No, I never had that. But you remember, I've been out here over 50 years. Uh, not over 50 years, I take that back. Been a long time, 1979 was there. Yeah, you'll read about that FBI agent in the book. I put his name in the book, too. Okay. Uh, uh, that Italian restaurant I was yeah. talking about is called Rouse, R-A-O. You were Rouse. right. Yeah, 114th yeah. and Pleasant. Yeah, I've been there. And it's still an Italian still restaurant. There? Yeah, it's still there. Oh, it's big. You could buy the sauce in the Vaughn <laughs> Pavilions, mm -hmm. Ralph's. Yeah. They got the, yeah, like $9 a jar. But it's not an Italian neighborhood anymore. You know, the, the Italians but all moved still out. There. It's still there. But the restaurant is the still there. The tables are owned mm. by wise guys. Yeah. Okay. So, um... Michael Harris, real quick before we wrap up the show, you actually met Harry O. Michael Harris, or didn't meet him. We spoke on the phone. Oh, oh yeah, him. over the phone because he was incarcerated. Yeah. And do you talk about him in your book? I mentioned him. I can't remember now. Okay. I, if I wish I had a book here, I could look at the index. There and did, is an index in my book. And did you ever answer 
his phone calls when he used to call death row? Michael Harris? Like who would, I answer, yeah, no, who would well, take those of, calls? Every, different people. Um, when he called, everybody was instructed not to answer that phone because if you called on the red phone, you, it was somebody. That he didn't want to talk to. It was somebody big. It was somebody important. So he started answering them, then he just stopped. He just don't answer that. And that came with, you know, his wife coming up there, the whole nine and all of that. So, I mean, you know what type of cashier it was, so it was bad business. Boy, I'm glad I did not get involved in that. Yeah, because she would have had you. Well, you, you probably had to get rid of him because he he put you on a bullshit mission. Well, no, you know, it's like I said, you know, and it's like, like I, you know, I could be off. Sonny should have called me back, sat at the table and discuss what happened here. And if he would have done that there, then he would discover the guy for title was an informant. Because, you know, so you're going to read in my book, I told you about that half a million. A hundred grand came in. What happened to the other 400,000? It's in my book. It's on my discovery. Okay? (laughs) The FBI got the fucking money, personally. So you guys never really specifically talked about it, you and Sonny. You just... I have a rule. My father taught me as a young boy never to snitch. My sister snitched on me one time, and my father gave her the spanking. Still made me go out and spade the garden, but she got the spanking. Never snitch. Sonny used to tell me I had to tell him everything. But if he and I having a problem, I'm not going to go to Sonny with it because now I'm snitching on you. That's still being a snitch. Don't you agree? Well, conversation needs to be explained in order to get to the bottom of a situation. Well, you're an intelligent guy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it really does. If if not, then you can't fix the situation. No. And if you can't fix the situation, the only thing you got to do that's left is to get rid of it. To think of how many guys are dead over nothing. Yeah, yeah. And that's you know, it's like when crazy. the FBI set me up and I taped the FBI. But I could tell when the attorney got that phone call, he said, the FBI called me, and they said, this is your last chance or else to work with them. The attorney's name is Mark Maisie. He's an entertainment lawyer today. I said, Mark, what do they mean by that or else? He said, I don't know. I said, all right, Mark, tell them you spoke to me. Tell them that Ori said, go fuck yourself. And then I sat in my chair on the wall, and I thought, what do they mean by that or else? And then it came to me. They're going to go out with their informants and say that I'm a snake. I'm a rat. He sure said they did. But I beat him to the punch. Because I had Jimmy Cachi with one of the tapes fly back to Buffalo, New York, go on record with Joe Tadaro, who was the boss of Buffalo, because Sonny was in prison. So I was in record when I was taping the FBI with a boss. So I know the rules. Yeah. They wanted me to keep doing it. Jimmy said, oh, you're in trouble. Yeah, I did. So you, how close were you with Jimmy Cachi? Now, he was part of the Los Angeles family, right? Yeah. Jimmy was originally from Buffalo. Jimmy was the most serious guy out here, in my opinion. Uh, Jimmy and I were like brothers. He was never the boss of the Los Angeles family? No. He was the boss of Palm Springs, 
Never made no money down there, Jimmy. <laughs> How um, you don't make any money in Palm Springs? That's where all the millionaires are at. Jimmy, Jimmy would be at my door on a Monday morning, and on Fridays he'd leave. We we made money. With Jimmy, we made money. We chopped it, fifty fifty. That's the way I like doing things. Chopping fifty fifty. But wouldn't Jimmy have to send some <laughs> back to Buff to upstate New York? What Jimmy did with his money, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Jimmy uh, still alive? Nah, I think he passed nah, in Jimmy 2011. Passed away. I, and I honestly think I probably one of the last people to speak to him. I was calling him from prison. He just got home from the hospital, and he was. I had to call Betty, and then he died. Yeah. And that was kind of like I think Jimmy's like the last of the Los Angeles crime family. The last one out here, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty. Um, I, I think it's pretty non-existent now that Los Angeles has uh, any sort I of. I haven't heard ties. of anything going on, but you know, if there was, I ain't going near them because I never went near the guys in Los Angeles, anyways. But you didn't Except mind for Jimmy. But during that time, you didn't mind associating <laughs> with guys like Jimmy and, and all, all these other people, and you knew what they were Jimmy doing. Jimmy and I had a close connection. We were from Buffalo. Uh you know, we were from the same neck of the woods in New York. Uh, people mistook us for brothers a lot of times when we were out. You know, there was a problem. You know, I, if I see Sonny, you tell Jimmy you're with me. Jimmy tells Sonny you're with me. <laughs> I had to introduce Jimmy to Sonny. I'm the one who made that introduction. Mm. Uh, but, uh, no, Jimmy was a great guy. He eventually learned to read or write. And Jimmy was feared out here, as far as the Italians are. He was feared. Jimmy Cacci died on August 16, 2011, at the age of 86. Well, a lot of these guys are uh, up there in age, like like really like old. Been there. Yeah. Been around for a long time. You know, one thing, you know what, it's really funny, and I don't know if it means anything. But when I was in Brooklyn, and we were in the towers over there, <coughs> it seemed like all the Italian wise guys are diabetics. <laughs> all that good uh, sauce. Huh? That sauce. The cannolis. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all right, so um, before we go, I just want you to give us at least uh, – a Frank Sinatra story. I know you probably have him in your book, but just tell us something brief about Frank Sinatra. You knew the guy personally. Frank Frank was not allowed to smoke around his wife. So in the days before the, all this bullshit was smoking, uh, you could smoke at the bars. Yeah. And, you know, Frank Sinatra put up the money uh, for Mateo's. And Westwood Boulevard. They both grew up in Hoboken, uh, Maddie Mateo. Maddie was funny. And uh, I was there every night. I sat on this side of the dining room. Frank sat in the dining room over with the table people and his wife Barbara. But we we sit at the bar. He'd come over, get a cigarette, and we sit at the bar. And we would talk and have a lot of conversations about the old days. 
But one of the best conversations was he walked out one night, we're getting our card with the valet. And he asked the valet, what's the biggest tip you ever got? And the guy, valet says, $100. Frank said, really? So Frank gives him 200 And he says, who gave you the 100 He said, you did, sir. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow, that's hilarious. That's hilarious. Wow. Now, Frank always hung out with all the gangsters. Even though he was a singer, he was in the music business, he hung out with gangsters. He's been photographed with almost... All the gangsters, but you know what I noticed? The rag pack was gangsters. This is something that that always bothered me, that white gangsters can do whatever. Uh, white gangsters and white entertainers can hang out and socialize, and no one criticizes it. But when people of color who are entertainers hang out with gangsters, they point the finger at this person exactly. as you, you're you're a bad guy. Frank Sinatra got away with hanging out with whoever he wanted to hang out with. And had and took very little stigma for that. And he broke the racial barrier in Las Vegas by with bringing Sammy. by bringing Sammy Davis Jr. Yeah. And yeah. that was crazy because Sammy Davis Jr. hanging with them. I wonder how in the hell he did it. Yeah, how he did it. I mean, back then you couldn't go to Vegas without being called the N word. <coughs> way back then, when they was when when they first came in to Vegas, so that was crazy. Sammy Davis Jr. and and he was part of the Rag Pack. Yeah. Dean Martin, Sammy Davis, Frank Sinatra. Well, let me ask you a question. You're brought up, you, you lived in New York in the 70s. I grew up in the 70s. Uh, there, yeah. Did you see much racial problems? Oh, yeah. Where where I was born in the Bronx, there was a, uh, you had the black section, you had the Puerto Rican section, and you had the Italian section. Right now, I, I just took my son there a couple weeks ago. None of that exists anymore. Everything is all mixed in because we got Dominicans that moved in, Jamaicans. But when I was a kid, it was all segregated. You know, So I'm, I, it's kind of cool that it, it doesn't exist anymore. So like, back yeah. then when you was there, it was pretty much like the Bronx Tales. Exactly. Come in, you niggas get out of our neighborhood. Woo, woo, woo. <clears throat> Excuse me, or vice versa. It was just like that. It was just like that, and especially in the 70s when I was really young. By the time you get to the 80s and 90s, it's starting to change. But I remember um, Webster Avenue. Uh, if you cross Webster Avenue, that's where all the brothers is at. And people used to say, no, you better not cross Webster Avenue. You can get your ass kicked if you yeah. go cross Webster Avenue. You know, so, you know, it doesn't, that doesn't exist anymore. But, I, but there is still pockets in Brooklyn. See, Brooklyn got gentrified. Um, there were parts of, of Brooklyn that were, were still segregated, but that gentrification, uh, Park Slope is all like yeah. yuppies and, and white business people moved into sections of Brooklyn that were all... Brooklyn is ex as expensive as Manhattan. Oh, man, it's crazy. Brooklyn is... Yeah. And even Harlem. Harlem costs too much money to live now. Harlem's big time. They yeah. redeveloped that there. You're going to see the same thing in Los Angeles. Oh, it's already happening here in L.A. I can't believe the rents in Inglewood, James. People used to move to Inglewood because, oh, I can go get me a one-bedroom apartment. Oh, it's high as much. You know, I can get a one-bedroom for 600 in Inglewood. Now it's like $1,500, oh, $2,000 for a one-bedroom apartment in Inglewood. Yeah. You know? But, uh, Ori, I want to thank you for coming yes, sir. on this edition of the Gangster Chronicles. I want to just... Remind everyone that your book just came out, November 2019. November the accidental, yesterday. Yeah, yesterday. Technically yesterday. Not, not, not only that, Alex, but we want everybody to know that this interview was different. It's certain things that we couldn't we couldn't address, 
is things that we didn't want to address with this this man here because um, of his book and and his personal safety, what whatever. But good interview. We appreciate you coming. My pleasure, uh, gentlemen. We'll get you back here, and maybe we can just you know get into it once everybody get this book and. And and I need to read it so I can have more to say. You know what? Honestly, I don't even have a book yet. <laughs> you ain't got a book? I don't have a book yet. I oh, bought a any? book for a friend of mine still in prison. He'll have it tomorrow. It so are you doing any book signings or anything coming up? Uh, I'm talking with Borders. I, I Barnes & Noble's over here. I don't know if they'll do it. Amazon in Century City. Uh... The Mob Museum in Las Vegas wants me there for a talk and a book signing. I spoke with a gentleman there. I said the end of January or February. Okay. Uh, so when you do get the when you do get the schedule, let us know and we can let everybody else. I'll know. let you know. That'll work. And uh, the book is available online at Amazon. It's also on Barnes and Noble. The Accidental Gangster. Yeah, or they can go to my website www theaccidentalgangster.com and they can find me on Instagram at theaccidentalgangster.com Alrighty. So. That's Ori Spado, theaccidentalgangster.com and also on Instagram at theaccidentalgangster. And his book, I saw his book already available online. It just came out yesterday, The Accidental Gangster. Go out there and get it. I'm going to go get it as soon as possible, read it, and then I'm gonna, I want to have another conversation with you after I read the book. I'd be happy to come back, gentlemen. And yeah. I want to just thank everybody for listening to another episode of The Gangster Chronicles. Don't forget, you can hit James McDonald up on his Facebook page or his Instagram. You can hit me up at AlexAlonzo101 on all social media platforms. Don't forget, he's still got those Death Row t-shirts. And uh, that's it. We're out. We out. We out. See y'all next week. Much love. This has been a Digital Soapbox Network production.